0: Some of you uh, know uh, about our house here in Kansas City. We've had a lot of you over to our house. And some of you know that in our backyard, uh, we've got a little bit of a water feature. So we bought the house about two years ago. And the previous owners, during the pandemic, they were bored and didn't know what to do with their time. So they decided to dig a hole in the backyard and create this water feature. And so when we moved in, it was one of the fun things that we got to, uh, you know, kind of adopt into our life is this little water feature, a little waterfall, a little pond, And one of the things that they had done is they had stocked the pond with koi fish. It's a little school of fish in that pond when we showed up. So Haven, my my kid and I, we went out there and uh, saw the fish, and we counted them, and Haven began to name them. And I said, honey, I don't know if I want you to name the fish. You know, when you you name an animal, you start to make this kind of connection with the animal. It's like you start to care about it and get close. That's why we name our kids, right? Because we want to be close to them and care about them. And I'm like, don't name the fish. It might not go well in the long term. Uh, but she started to name some of them. There were 13 koi fish in our pond. And that first year at our house, I, I spent time, I f- fed them twice a week. Uh, we put a heater in the pond so it wouldn't freeze over in the winter. I checked the pH balance every week to make sure that their little home environment was just perfect for them. And, uh, loved, you know, we just watched over those fish. And I often would count them. I don't know why, but, you know, there's 13. I just remember 13. I would often count them. And uh, about a year ago, just over a year ago, I went out saw the fish, I started to count them, and there was 12 koi fish in the pond. Not 13, there was 12. And so I began to look behind rocks and couldn't find the 13th fish. And I thought, well, sometimes things happen, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so about a week later, I went out, and, and now there was one more missing. There were 11. And I started to think, oh, we might be having a pattern here. And a couple days later, I found the first fish that had been missing, Sam. I, I told her not to name them, but Sam. Um, LAUGHTER Like 20 yards away from the pond in the yard, half eaten, just like laying there in the sun. And I began to realize that, like, there was a hawk or a, a neighborhood cat, someone, some animal had discovered this little backyard pond, and now the back of the Powell house was a little snack shop for this animal. And whenever they had a, you know, a peckish feeling in their stomach, they would say, "Well, I'll just go by and get another koi fish." And so, over the next week, about once a week, another fish would be missing, and this went on for months. And the first month I was frustrated. The second month I was angry. And by the third month, we were down to about four or five koi fish, and. And I was now desensitized. You know, I was apathetic. There's nothing I could do. I couldn't watch the pond 24-7. I couldn't, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, one would go missing. There's just nothing I could do. And so I disassociated myself. I removed my emotion, and I just settled into this reality. These fish are going to be gone, right? They're going to be taken. And then at the end of September 2022, that fateful morning, I walked out, and there were no fish in the pond, and I felt nothing, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I felt nothing I had removed emotion I knew this was going to happen I was desensitized it was the reality and so now for a year we've had no koi fish we could always restock it but I'm like I'm not going down that road again <laughs> we're not going to open up the snack shop so uh, it's been empty now sometimes we do this in our, in our worlds in our lives things like that maybe don't matter as much like the koi fish that doesn't really matter that much it's the, you know, the way of nature the cycle of life I'm okay with all that but there's other things in our lives that matter more, and sometimes when we go through hard things, we start to pull back our emotion. We start to try to desensitize ourselves so we don't have to feel the, 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 the hardship, the pain, the suffering, whatever it might be. And this can be really dangerous when it comes to our spiritual realities, when we start to feel like this slide into apathy in the way that we live our spiritual lives, when God seems to be silent to us, when we, we try to open ourselves to him, when we try to experience his presence and his power and the promises of scripture and when we're going through hardship and and god seems to not respond it seems like there's a a silence there and we start to wonder is he really listening and we start to feel like showing up on sunday morning we do just because we've always done it before and yet we're not really expecting that god's going to say anything or or do anything we begin to feel apathetic in our faith last Wednesday night, the student ministries here had a story night. Jason planned a story night where we had six students and adults sharing their story of faith, how God has showed up in their life. And almost every one of them talked about a season of their lives when they felt disconnected from God, when they weren't expecting him to do anything. And they just lived life as they normally would, just kind of doing the best they could with their everyday. And they began to feel the hardship and the, the challenge of that. And then at some point, God showed up in a way that caught their attention. And they began to realize, each one of them shared some, some story, some process in their life where they began to realize, you know what, God is here. He does care. He's with me every day. Even when I'm not sensitive to it, there's times when he's holding me in the midst of the storm, and I might not feel it, but he was there, and they began to share those stories. And I wonder this morning if some of you can relate to that as well, that maybe you've been in those places where God seemed distant, or maybe even this morning... You're wondering, is he really with you and for you? Is he really going to show up? Maybe you've had those seasons of life where the presence of God was underwhelming, and you just sort of settled into that apathetic approach to what God would do. You, times when you just said, well, maybe he's not going to do those things I hope he will do. Maybe he doesn't really care about what I'm facing and the hardship I'm going through. Maybe he's not going to answer those questions that I've been asking. Maybe you're in that place this morning just hoping that God might pinch you today, that you would know he's here. Maybe you're praying that he would even give you like a gut punch just to kind of wake you up so that you could, would know that he's present, that he's with you, that he cares. The Old Testament book of Judges, we read the story of people that were having a similar experience, walking through life, just doing the best they could, somewhat disinterested in what God was doing, somewhat separated from God. And I, I would love for you to get back into this story with me this morning. We've been going through it. This is our ninth week uh, on the book of Judges. We're at Judges 13. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you could open up to Judges 13, open up your Bible app, chapter 13 of the book, Old Testament book of Judges. And, and we're going to continue this uh, journey through the book together. And one of the things we've been looking at in this nation as they've grown is that they, they began, began to not sense God's presence in the ways that they had before. In fact, There's this idea of grandparents sitting with their grandkids, telling them the stories about God. The grandparents talking about how God showed up in the midst of the storm, how God was faithful uh, through overwhelming odds, how God's kindness met them in the midst of tragedy. And the grandkids are hearing their grandparents tell these stories, but it's just not sticking in their hearts. It's not sensitizing them to the way of God, the love of God. And so a whole generation would would move into the season of apathy and disinterest in the ways of God, this cycle that we've been looking at, and we've talked about through this summer. I want to put it back on the screen for you again. Maybe you've seen it in the lobby on the charts out there. But this, this cycle that they would go through where they would push away from God, become disinterested in Him, sin right at the top. And then God would send another nation to oppress them, to bring about some hardship that might wake them up and help them realize what was happening. And then they would cry out to God. They would, it's, here it says repentance, but in Scripture it often sounded like a cry. They would yell out, do you see us? Do you care about us? Save us. Come and help us. Save us. Make things right again. And they would cry out. And then God would send a deliverer, a judge, a leader that would guide them against that enemy nation. And then there would be a season of peace, a season where they were reconnected with God, where they had a sense of hope and peace in themselves and, and with their creator this morning, we're going to move into the final time through this cycle in the book of Judges. We're going to meet our, our final judge, a man named Samson, and uh, he had long hair and he was really strong, and my mind goes back to the 90s with, if you guys remember, Fabio and the I Can't Believe It's Not Butter uh, campaign. <laughs> this is what comes into my mind when I think of Samson. Long, flowing hair, big muscles, Swedish, okay, maybe not so much, Um I know Fabio is not the right image to have in my mind when it comes to Sam. That's totally the wrong, uh, not accurate at all. But that's what pops into my head. And so we're introduced to him in Judges 13. Actually, the birth of Samson is the title over my uh, chapter 13. So this is sort of the origin story of the final judge in the book of Judges. So look at verse 1 with me. And let's just start to read a little bit. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. And the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. So verse 1, we've got this repeat, repeated phrase. Again, we've seen this throughout the book. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So, last time we're going to read that in the book of Judges. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't evil maybe in their sight. Maybe when they looked at their world and what they were doing, it didn't seem like it was off for them. But in God's eyes, it was evil. It was, it was wrong. It was sinful, a word that we don't use all that much anymore. It was something that pushed away from it. Here's a definition for sin that might be helpful. Sin is anything we think, anything we say, anything we do that obscures the beauty of God from those around us, from ourselves. It blocks the beauty of God and it hurts others. It hurts ourselves, it hurts our neighbor, it hurts our family. Anything we do that obscures the beauty of God and hurts another, and it could, be, it could do both those things. Sin is what breaks us and, and pushes us away from God, and, and it is what is evil. And the scripture here says they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did what was sinful in the eyes of the Lord. And, and knowing that it's in the eyes of the Lord helps us to understand a little bit more about sin, how, how you would maybe think about it. It is not defined... Sin is not defined by what I think violates my conscience or my standards. Sin is not defined by what uh, our culture would say is right or wrong. If I'm trying to figure out if, if something is wrong for me to do, something that God would not have me do, the question I don't want to ask is how do I feel about it? What, what does my heart have to say about this situation? What would my neighbor have me do? What would they think is the right thing to do in this situation? That's not the question we're supposed to ask. Because sin is defined in the eyes of God. The question I want to wrestle with is, what is God's intention for my life? What is his will for my life? What is it that he would have me do in this situation? What would he have me not do? What would he have me do in this uh, period of time in my life? God defines sin, not us. And Pastor Lexi gave us a great example of that last week when she talked about Jephthah, the judge right before Samson. is on the battlefield and he's fighting and he talks to God and he says, if you will give me victory... When I get home, you guys remember this from last week, when I get home, I will, I, will sacrifice, I will make an offering of the first person that comes out of my house to greet me when I come home. And in Jephthah's mind, this is a good thing to do. This is, this is what it means to worship a god for the Canaanite people, for the people of the land. You, you take something important, you take someone who's important to you and you offer them, you sacrifice them as a way of saying, small g gods, fake gods, you are more important than this person. And so Jephthah says, it seems right to me, in my eyes, this seems like a good thing to do, to promise that I will sacrifice someone I care about when I come home. If God, you will give me victory on the battlefield. And God shakes his head and says, That's not right. That's not what I've called you to be about. And in fact, he, the Ten Commandments, do not kill, right? Do not murder. God says, this is not how you honor me. But Jephthah, he's just doing what's right in his own eyes. He's doing what he thinks is good and right to do. Lexi said it last week. She said, Jephthah did not know the true nature of God. When you don't know the true nature of God, then you do what's right in your own eyes, and that's when sin happens. That's when we break relationship with people around us. We break our own hearts. We hurt others. We hurt ourselves. We break relationship with God, evil in the eyes of God. And the people sin, and God, it says in verse 1 here, God allows that to go on. For forty years, they they come under the hardship of the Philistines, and the Philistines control them for forty years. Forty—that's the longest time by by far of any of the cycles and judges. It's the longest period of time that the people were oppressed by another nation. Forty years, and some of you are aware that forty is an important number in the Bible. It shows up in different places, and it has the number forty has some symbolism to it in Scripture. You know that the people of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years as they left slavery in Egypt and moved towards freedom in the promised land, and it took them 40 years to walk through the desert waiting for God to bring them to the promised land. You think about Noah and his family sitting on the ark, 40 days they waited as the rains fell as God was bringing judgment on the world, 40 days they sat in that floating zoo waiting for the rain to stop in that ancient story. I think about Elijah and, and Jesus, they both didn't eat for 40 days as God is preparing them for a new season of work, new ministry in their, in their worlds. And so they refused to eat for 40 days as they prepared for that. So 40 carries with it this idea of, of testing and hardship and preparation. We see that in, in the Bible. And 40 is like the perfect number of that. It's like this is the perfect amount of hardship and challenge to test the people of God. And so 40 years is what happens here. They're going through that oppression, that suffering, and loss, and then in verse, uh, verse three, an angel of the Lord appears to a woman and says, "I'm going to bring a son to you." And there's this promise that that one is going to come who is going to set things right—a new judge, a new leader for the people. But this is again a departure from the cycle that we've seen so far because there's something missing. I don't know if you've picked up on this yet, but the people come under the oppression of the Philistines for 40 years. They're under that hardship. And normally in the cycle, there's a next step that happens that doesn't happen here. And then the third thing that happens is God sends a judge, sends someone to bring freedom. Do you guys, do you guys catch what was missing there? They're the heart repentance, right? The, the crying out. The people don't cry out for God. He begins to move on their behalf before they even cry out to him, before they wake up to the hardship that they are going through. Before they cry out and remember him, he begins to to make a difference in this story. This final cycle, that's missing out. And it's because the people have fallen into this desensitized way of life. They've become apathetic about their calling from God in their lives and the heritage of their people. They look at this outside people group pushing them down and they say, well, I mean, that's just kind of the way life goes. We might as well get used to it. And they don't cry out to God for help. This is why later in chapter 15, The people of God come and confront Samson as he's trying to help them push back against the Philistine authority. In verse 15, Judges 15, it says this, then 3,000 men from Judah, 3,000 Jewish men come down to Samson and they say, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? Don't you realize this is the way our life is going? Stop trying to change it. This is our reality. They've become indifferent to the the ways of God, the promise that God made to them. He said, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. You are the children of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I want to use you to transform this world, and they've, they've let that go, and they've settled into indifference. Samson's origin story is a living example of what happens when we settle into a spiritually dull posture towards God, when we slide into spiritual blindness, and we no longer see God operating around us, or even worse yet, even maybe more dangerous, is we don't expect that he's going to be doing anything in our everyday lives. The people don't cry out, they're silent, but God goes ahead and starts to move on their behalf. Judges 13, we see how good and faithful God is, that even before they ask for it, he begins to create a way to bring them freedom, to bring them change, a change agent that's going to transform their story. And I'm so thankful that God does this for us, that he comes looking for us before we're, while we're even lost, before we're even looking for him, before we're interested in the divine and the supernatural. Our Father God is moving on, behalf, on our behalf. And one of Jesus's closest friends in the New Testament, a man named John, would write about this in his different books of the New Testament. In his story of Jesus's life, the Gospel of John He writes about a time when Jesus said these words. Jesus said, you did not choose me, instead I chose you. In other words, before you came to me, I was already thinking about you. Before you came and gave yourself to me, I was already giving myself to you. I chose you. And later, John would write in one of his letters, 1 John, he would write these words. What is love? It is not that we loved God. It is that he loved us and sent his son to give his life to pay for our sins. Love is that God moved towards us first, that God reached out to us first. And just a few verses later, John would say it one more time. He said, we love because God loved us first. Before we cried out for God's mercy, for his grace, he was already on the way. Before you began to feel the depth of your struggle and pain, God was aware and bringing new things together, to put into your life. So should we cry out to God if he's already moving on our behalf? Yes, we should still cry out to God. When we cry out to him, when we lift our voices, when we say to him, I need you, I show up, would you help me, would you save me? We express the the posture of our heart that we believe he's moving and doing things. It helps us when we say out loud to God, I need you, because it opens us up to him in a powerful way. And God is already moving on our behalf. He's already here. That's what love is all about. So back in, in Judges 13 then, God is moving. The people haven't cried out yet, but he's moving. Look at verse 3. The angel of the Lord appears, says to Manoah's wife, you are barren and child, childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Verse 4, now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Here we got another departure from our normal cycle in the book of Judges, that God is bringing forth a leader even before he's born. And all the other stories we've read so far in Judges, God comes to someone who's already walking around, an adult who's doing things in the world and in the the community there. And he comes to one who's, you know, 15, 20, 30 years old and says, I'm going to do something through you. I'm calling you out. You're going to lead the people. This time, even before Samson's born, God says, I've got you. I'm, I'm calling him. He's going to lead the people. He's going to bring something different. Manoah's wife is not named in this story, which sort of adds insult to injury because she's, she's barren. She's not able to have kids, and now she's also not even named. We never get her name in the story. And in the story of Judges, we need to remember that this is an ancient story written, uh, written uh, to a people, that lived thousands of years ago. And for them, this idea of barrenness was a a big deal. It still is a big deal to us today, but in a different way, in a farming culture that uh, the book of Judges is written to. When kids uh, are workers for you in your fields, they're potential, uh, that you're going to be okay as a family, that you're going to have the the workers that are needed to, to bring in income and to provide safety for the family. And so when you're not able to have kids, it's it's a devastating truth. There's an Old Testament scholar that wrote about that. He said this, a barrenness in ancient time in ancient texts symbolized hopelessness. For without children there was no foreseeable future for yourself, for your family, or for your people. So Manoah and his wife they're unable to have children and it's a crisis for them. It means a dead end for their family. She's not named, she's not bar- she's barren and then God steps in. And changes the story. And this is something we see in other places in Scripture. You guys know some other stories where God shows up when there's men and women that can't have kids and they want to have kids, and God steps in. Anybody know some some of those stories? Any names come to mind? Sarah and Abraham uh, with Isaac, and and Sarah's like what in her seventies when God says you're gonna have you're gonna have a kid, and she just laughs. laughs like oh, sure thing, right? That's her response. Who else do you think of? Hannah, yes. In the very next. Book after Judges is First Samuel, and Samuel is like he's he's really like the last judge, but also the first prophet and priest. It's a he's a transitional character that brings the people from this time of judges into the time of the kings of Israel. And his mom Hannah is not able to have children, and she cries out to God, and supernaturally she's able to have Samuel, and she dedicates him to God. Anyone else come to mind? Elizabeth in the New Testament, right, and uh, the mother of John the Baptist. And Zachariah, her husband's like, you know, the angel tells him you're going you're gonna to have a child, and he's like, I need some evidence, I need some proof, got to make, you know, I'm not sure I'm buying this. So we, we see these stories in scripture, and sometimes people believe, they receive the word and like, yes, I believe, you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she says, let it be as you have said to me, I believe it's going to happen. And Manoah's wife, will find out later that she believes, She's, she hears this word from the angel of the Lord, and she believes that it's going to happen. Other times, uh, you know, like with Abraham and Sarah and Zechariah, they, they need evidence, they laugh, they're not sure it's going to come together. But God shows up in a powerful way. In verse 5, we read that, that the child she's going to have is going to be a Nazarite, and that might be a new term for you. This idea, a Nazarite vow, a promise, or a, a covenant that a person would make for a period of time in their life when they're wanting God to do something new in them or through them. And they would make a commitment to God. And there is a way of showing that commitment. And we read about that in Numbers chapter 6. So let me just put a few verses on the screen here from Numbers 6. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drinks. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. You get the idea, right? During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. And then a third part of it, throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. So for a Nazarite, they would say for a period of time, I'm gonna make this promise. There is, you know, their hair would grow long, there wouldn't be any drink boxes in their fridge, right? They would avoid that. They wouldn't work as a mortician. They wouldn't go near. This is a way of showing the special promise that they're making to God, the special calling that they're sensing from God, that they're dependent on him as they're seeking something new in their life. And once that promise was fulfilled, made an appointment at Great Clips to get trimmed up, they would go by the liquor store, you know, things kind of returned to normal for them. So today, you know, we make promises. We might have other ways of symbolizing that. We might put a ring on our finger to symbolize a promise that we've made. Uh, Maybe we get a tattoo that talks about a core value of our life, something that's important to us. Maybe you've got a sticker on the back of your car talking about how proud you are of your honor student or your voting record or your breed of dog that you like the most, you know, whatever it is. These are like external ways of us talking about deeper things in our lives. It's an external way of talking about something that's important to us. And that's what the Nazarite vow is all about. It was an external way for the people to express their heart of devotion to God, their commitment to God, their trust in God. And so for Samson here, there's already some differences in this Nazarite vow. For one thing, uh, he doesn't uh, volunteer for it. He doesn't sign up for it. It's put on him. He's told, before he's even born, it said, he will be a Nazarite. This will be a vow that he will have. And it won't be for a period of time in his life. It will be for his entire life, the angel says, that he will always walk this way as a Nazarite. Why would this be different? Well, at the end of verse 5, it says that this, this hero, this judge, he will begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. His life will be different, and it will not get to a completion point. It won't, he won't see the promise fulfilled, but he will begin the work. Someone else will finish it for him. He will start it, but one will come who will finish it. Let's go ahead and read the rest of this story as Manoah himself begins to interact with his wife. So look at verse six. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. This is important for ancient people that you would say, where are you from? What's your name? It would tell you something about the person. Their name would reveal their family, their tribe, their work, the kind of things they do in the world. And so she's like, he didn't tell me any of this information. Verse 7, but he did say to me, you will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, "'Pardon your servant, Lord.'" Ever prayed that way to God? "'Pardon me, Father.'" You know, it's an interesting way to approach God. "'Pardon your servant. "'I beg that you let the man of God you sent "'to come again to us, "'to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born.'" And God heard Manoah, and the angel of the Lord came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. Strike two, right? He misses it twice. So the woman hurries to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Verse 11, Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, the angel said. Well, Manoah, your wife just told you he's the man. But he's like, "Ah, I'm going to make sure. Verse 12, so Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule of life that governs the boy's life and work. The angel of the Lord answered him, your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, or, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Basically, the angel says, I've already told you what, what she's supposed to do. Just do what I said. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, we would like to, you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat anything, any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. A little parenthetical statement here. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Somehow he didn't see what his wife, his wife said this was an angel of the Lord, that he was awesome. Remember that? She said, he's awesome. Manoah doesn't see it. He's not picking. He's a little spiritually um, desensitized. He doesn't pick it up. Verse 17, then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, what is your name, so that we may honor you when your word comes true? And the angel replied, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. A curious kind of story, what's, what's happening here with Manoah? He's, he, he hears about this announcement, and he says, hey, I, I need to hear it with my own ears. I want to I see it happen. So he asked God to send the angel again. The angel, grace, it's just grace that the angel comes again. And Manoah be, begins his little interrogation. So are you the one that talked to my wife? What are the rules for raising this child? Can you stay for dinner? What's your name? You just fill out this connection card. We'll follow up with you next week. You know, like just starts to pepper him with all these questions, interrogation. And I appreciate the angel answering him. You know, I, I, I'm the one who spoke to her. I've already told you what to do. Uh, you can make me stay for dinner, but I'm not gonna eat what you prepare. That's an interesting one, that third one. What's going on in that part of the story? Well, I think what's happening there is it's the angel of the Lord. It's a way of saying that you are not you are not connected to God right now. You're not interested in the things of God. You're interested in this being in front of you, but you're not really pursuing God or connected to him. So I'm not going to sit at a table and eat with you. It's a way of making that distinction. You are not in fellowship with God the Father, so I will not be in fellowship with you. And you can compare this to when Gideon had the angel of the Lord appear to him in in chapter 6 of Judges. Gideon had a similar experience, but when Gideon said to that angel, said, I would like to prepare an offering, the angel said, I will wait while you do that, and I will, I'll partake. And, it, and it, you get something about the posture between Gideon and Manoah here. Gideon was saying, I want to worship God. I want to bring an offering. Would you wait till I bring an offering? Manoah says, I want you to stay here longer. I'm going to make some food. I want to figure this thing out with you. I want you to stay at the table. And the angel says, I'm not, I'm not going to play the game with you. It's not what I'm interested in. What is Manoah doing as he's asking these questions? Well, he's trying to control the situation, isn't he? He's asking questions. He's not trusting his wife. He's distrusting what the celestial being is saying. He's, He's misunderstanding this theophany happening in front of him, this appearance of God in his very presence, and he's not picking up on it. He's not grasping what's happening. And that's what happens when you become disinterested in the things of God. When you get cold spiritually towards God, you begin to miss what God is doing all around you. You start to look past the spiritual fireworks that God is sending up, and and you see your life, and you start to assume that things are coincidence or accident, or we start to use words like karma, or or worse yet, we start to say, well, I'm going to manifest this myself, because God's not showing up. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to create my own reality. When we are desensitized to the holy and wonderful ways of God, well, we end up grasping for control. We end up grasping for ways that, well, we think will bring us peace and hope and make sense of life for us, and we get desperate about it. We start holding on to broken things and broken people, and we're looking for an explanation. We're trying to negotiate with this world, with this life. But God, he doesn't always explain himself to us. God doesn't always explain, but he reveals. When God shows up, we don't always get an explanation, but we get revelation. He doesn't answer all of our questions. He doesn't help us understand everything, but he does show up in a way that calls us to attention. He will reveal himself in a way that will grab hold of our hearts. And even though we don't have all the answers to our questions, we, we have this opportunity to trust him and surrender to him, respond to him. I see that happening with Gideon. I don't see that happening so much with Manoah. And that's why the angel of the Lord says to him, Why are you asking for my name? You wouldn't be able to understand it if I told you. Another translation says, Why do you ask my name? It is too wonderful. It's too wonderful for you. You wouldn't be able to get your mind around it. The name of God, the ways of our Creator, the path of life that Yahweh calls us to walk is beyond our understanding. We want the details, and God reveals His character. We want to categorize and formulate and create our spreadsheets and understand everything that He's saying, and God brings fire that burns all that away because religion negotiates with God, but faith surrenders. And that's what we're invited into is faith, not religion. God's not interested in religion with you. He's interested in relationship. And that kind of faith is a faith that surrenders to him. He may not explain himself to you. He doesn't have to. But he will transform you if you will lay your life down in front of him. You will open your heart to him and say, I don't need to be in control. I don't need to do what's right in my own eyes. I want to do what's right in your eyes, Father God. Would you transform me? Would you do something new? There should be a moment uh, every time we gather together as a church where where we stop taking notes, where we put down the pen and we stop writing down all the things we need to do to experience God in our life and we simply just look up at him. And we stop looking down at what we can do and we look up with hope at what only God can do. The hope of our times together is not that you would receive a bunch of information uh, these gatherings that we have, it's not even so that you would be inspired to go live your best life. We, the point of our family reunions here every week that we have on Sundays, the point of this time together is that you would walk out of here worshiping God, surrendered to him, trusting him, believing that he is moving towards you, that he loves you, that he is with you. That's why we gather together. So the child is born, and the mom gives him the name Samson which is sort of a tragic name because it's a name that points towards a fake uh, no-God, sun god that the Canaanite people worships. Uh, A lot of the scriptural names we see in the Bible point towards Jehovah God, Samuel, Joshua. Those are all names that point towards the Hebrew, one true God, creator God. But Samson points to really no God at all. And you end chapter 13 and you think like he's going to be a great leader. As you're reading his origin story, you're like, man, all these promises before he's even born, he's going to be a great leader, a powerful prophet, a righteous judge, but he doesn't live up to any of that. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at Samson's story a little bit more and we're going to see that he failed in many ways. And some of those ways that we're, we fail today as well. He was impulsive, he compromised, he was prideful, he had an entitlement attitude and we're going to talk about those in two weeks from today because next week we're actually going to have a different Sunday. Uh, we thought maybe it'd be nice as we move into the last month of the summer to take a break from Judges because it's kind of a heavy book. It's kind of a lot there. And uh, we, next Sunday we're going to hear from uh, our teams that went to Nicaragua and Alaska. We're going to celebrate the stories of, of what they experienced with God um, as they went out on mission with him. And so that's going to be a great time next Sunday. And then the following Sunday we'll get back into the story of Samson. And I think as we do that we're going to continue to be challenged by God. To surrender to him, to come out of our apathy, out of our de- desensitization, and, and be sensitized to the ways of God. So let's ask him to do that in our lives. I want to pray with you and just invite God to speak to us as we finish together this morning. So let's talk to God. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace for us. We thank you for your love that reaches out to us even before we, we turn towards you, that you are concerned for us, you are with us. You are present in our lives, even when we are unaware. And Father, we want to be aware. We want to hear from you. We want to have a sense of your presence with us. Father, I I believe there's someone here this morning that's been waiting for you to speak, that's been hungry for you to do something new in their life. Someone that's been really seeking you out and wanting you to respond. And Lord, I pray that you would meet them this morning, that you would speak, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see, that you are good and faithful and trustworthy, that you are with them even if they can't see, that you are answering their questions even when they can't hear it, that you are providing what is needed as they move through this this difficult season of their life. Lord, would you bring your blessing today? Open our hearts and our minds to you. Remind us that you are good and faithful. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We, we lift up a song of worship to you. And we surrender to you in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Father, we're so grateful. Lord, we're so thankful that we get to be in your presence, that you call us out to you. Right here in this moment, Lord, we want to receive you. We wanna receive all that you are. Holy Spirit, we accept you into our hearts. Jesus, we accept you into our hearts. Change us, renew us from the inside out, daily. Make this a daily thing, not just a a Sunday thing, not just a biweekly or monthly thing, Lord. Let this be every minute, every hour. We're aware of you and your presence and what you're doing in our lives and our families. Thank you, Father, for your ultimate sacrifice, for taking on the weight that was originally designed for us, Lord. You took it all on you. And all you ask is that we spend time with you and that we love you the way you love. Teach us to love. We wanna be more like you every day. It's in your son's mighty name that we pray. Amen and amen. Hillcrest, thank you so much for joining us this morning in worship. We want to see you guys next week and every week after. Real quick, can we give big thanks to Pastor Nate coming back, giving us an amazing word this morning. If you're online, we hope that that word reached you. We want to make sure that we see you guys next week. Make sure that you drop your offering and your connection card in the joy boxes. I've always wanted to say that. It's my first time saying that. Thanks so much for joining us, Hillcrest. Once again, we love you. Go and be great. We'll see you next week.